You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Here we go. I have a bad feeling about this. Follow me, boys! You're not shinies anymore. Go, go, go! Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Clone Wars Strikes Back. This is the podcast where we celebrate the five-year history of the animated series Star Wars The Clone Wars by going back and discussing each and every arc of the series. Apologies for being a week late, but last weekend was a bit crazy, but we're here now to discuss the Gunray Ventress Grievous arc from Season 1, making made up of the episodes Bombad Jedi, um, Cloak of Darkness, and Lair of Grievous. Joining me to discuss these episodes, as always, is my co-host, Kieran. Hi there, Dominic. How are you doing? I am fantastic. How about you? Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. It seems like ages since we've done a podcast. I mean, I had to, you know, dust off my Star Wars Underworld t-shirt. It was getting uh, full of cobwebs. <laughs> Come on. It's been, it's been a while, but um, I think it's going to be well worth the wait. Oh, yes, definitely. And speaking of the Star Wars Underworld, joining us this week from the Star Wars Underworld is Mr. Chris Siegel. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm so glad to finally be on this. You guys have been doing a fantastic job for uh, the last several weeks, months that you've been doing this show, and I'm very excited to be on it finally. Yes, yes, and we are excited to have you. I should mention, I realized that I, I didn't mention this, and I've done this before on podcasts. My name is Dominic. <laughs> I've, I forget to do that sometimes. I don't know what is wrong with me. That's because you're used to me doing it. Yes, that's <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this is kind of a role reversal for me and Chris. Usually when we do our other show, the Star Wars Underworld podcast, Chris is, you know, running around doing all this crazy stuff to make sure everything is working, and I'm just sort of sitting back going, is it time to start yet? Jeez, we only got 30 seconds left. Come on, Chris, hurry up. And, and this time, well, suffice to say, we had a few technical difficulties to start off the show um, with uh, trying to record this uh, this thing. But let's jump into these episodes. Like I said, Bombad Jedi, Cloak of Darkness, and Lair of Grievous. Uh, Kieran, do you have a brief summary for these episodes? I do indeed, Dominic. And to start off with Bombad Jedi... On a diplomatic mission to the planet Rhodia, Padme discovers that her old friend and fellow Republic Senator, Onakunda Far, has allied his planet with the Separatists. Padme has taken hostage in exchange for food and resources for his people. And in the second episode, Cloak of Darkness, Ahsoka and Jedi Master Luminara escort the captured notorious Separatist leader Newt Gunray to Coruscant so he can stand for a trial. For his crimes, they are unaware, however, that Count Dooku has sent a Sarge Ventress to free their captive. And to finish off on the final, Lair of Grievous, Jedi Master Kit Fisto and former Padawan Jedi Nardar Veb track escaped prisoner Newt Gunray to a remote world, but they soon discover it is a trap-laden lair of General Grievous. Yeah, so um, I think it's suffice to say... These are some of the best episodes from season one. This is our, uh, I think all of our favorite episodes. I mean, Chris, uh, you, before we even started doing this podcast, you asked to come on for these ones. So, uh, why don't you go first? I mean, how awesome are these episodes? 
Uh, these are so awesome that these kind of made the series for me. I mean, I was still a little sketchy about the Clone Wars. I wasn't sure if it was going to hold up to everything Star Wars that had come before it, like the films and the Fantastic Micro series, until these episodes. Um, Cloak of Darkness was the first time when I was watching this show where I said, this, this is at the same level as the films. I'm seeing an extension of the films here. It's just... And then when we got to Lair of Grievous, that was the first episode that exceeded my expectations. That wasn't just on par, but I thought was better than some of the stuff in the films. That's when I thought that the show actually got to the point where it was extending the films and, and expanding the characters and situations in it. So um, for those reasons, especially the, the, the latter two of the three episodes uh, really meant a lot to me and uh, really um, got me very excited about the future of the Clone Wars series. And, and of course, it continued to get better from there. Nice, nice. And Kieran, how about you? Um, what were your initial impressions of this arc? Oh, it was, it was fantastic the first time I saw this. And I echo what Chris has said there because some of this, some of the aspects and uh, plots and characters and just everything that was seen in these in this particular arc was absolutely fantastic. To be honest, it was it was definitely one where you could see that uh, where where the future arcs would delve in and examine some of these main themes, particularly looking at, at the Sith and the dark side. And people who are thinking that this was a kids show, well, this arc definitely did not reflect that at all. And I think that was that was the first time I really got excited about it because seeing the Clone Wars micro series, uh, that was a lot of action, but it didn't really delve into the characters. It didn't really delve into any major themes that were explored in the films. And yet, in this particular arc, there's so much good stuff here, and and I believe there's so much to talk about as well. And and that's what's made this such a special arc uh, in this season. And as we all pretty much stated, one of the best ones, if not the best, in season one. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I just have to echo everything you guys said about, you know, Ventress, Grievous, heck, even Jar Jar in this arc was incredible. Um, so let, let's, let's jump into the first episode and I, w- I want to ask you guys about Padme because we see her, um, in a situation where, you know, in the prequels, she kind of always had, you know, Anakin and Obi-Wan to, uh, to back her up. But this time she's really on her own and her only support is, um, is Jar Jar and, and 3PO. Really the last two people in the Star Wars galaxy you want on your dream team. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, you'd rather have R2-D2 and, and Anakin out there. So, um, Kieran, I'll, th- I'll throw it to you first. Uh, what did you think of Padme in this arc? Uh, I, you know, I thought her character was, uh, it was quite interesting in this particular arc. This is the first real arc that we've delved into her character properly. And, I thought it was, it was a nice introduction, or proper introduction, uh, excluding the film. Um, you could see that she's more than just this senator. She was out there. She's a fighter. She, you know, she likes to take part in what she terms of these aggressive negotiations. And so I, I thought that was very interesting. I mean, some of the ways that she's able to escape situations, like in the, in the cell, is just, <laughs> it's not something you would expect of a senator anyway, that's for sure. So. Um, I mean that that was particularly funny to say the least, and uh, and in relation to the um, the, the duo of uh, Jar Jar and Freepio with her, um, I think it was very much evident when uh, Palpatine stated that only those qualified should participate in these meetings, and uh, I don't think you'd really want Jar Jar and Freepio to be taking part in those meetings. That's that's my personal point, anyway. <laughs> yeah, for sure, maybe, maybe Freepio, but definitely not Jar Jar. Chris, how about you? Uh, what, were his, what was your opinion of Padme in this arc? 
Well, it's interesting because yet again we see her captured and another plot revolved around rescuing her. And so from that perspective, it, it kind of weakens her character because, like, just how Grievous is the character that's always running away, Padme seems to be the character that's always getting captured. Um, but as Kieran mentioned, she was able to free herself in this episode, so she kind of breaks out of that paradigm, which is um, really awesome and empowering for her character. Um, and specifically it, with that scene and her, like, locked in the tower – uh, it reminded me of two things. One, of course, it reminded me of class, classic mythology with a princess getting locked up in a tower, kind of like Rapunzel, um, and Jar Jar climbing up to the tower as well. I mean, again, r- just substitute those vines for Padme's hair, and it would be Rapunzel, <laughs> Star Wars style. Um, uh, so, and also, it, there was some foreshadowing there, because, of course, the beginning of A New Hope revolves around rescuing a princess from a fortress very similarly so uh, there's some foreshadowing with her um daughter leia there so uh i thought that um the the plot with padme was very on point and it fits with classic mythology and the rest of the star wars universe yeah absolutely i'm with you guys on that um i especially i like your comparison of, of rapunzel to uh to Padme, it, I guess um, Jar Jar is the Prince Charming of the Star Wars universe. Um, uh, so we mentioned them a little no, bit. He's more, he's more like Shrek, isn't he? I'd say he's more of a donkey. A donkey! Jar Jar! Uh, that, that, that's the relationship there. The, the 3PO and Jar Jar relationship. That's why it was so funny. Three, as a Shrek and, and donkey. Ah, oh, that's brilliant. Um, so... You know, we have this hilarious Jar Jar episode or centric plot, but it's really, you know, it's on top of this, you know, a very dark situation with the, the suffering of Rhodia and, you know, the starvation of the people. And you see, uh, Uncle Anno, um, he makes this decision to go with Newt Gunray. Now, we see Padme call him Uncle. And, I, well, I don't think there's any sort of, you know, blood relationship or even, you know, marital relationship. I think it's a bit more like how, on How I Met Your Mother, Ted always, <laughs> the future Ted always refers, refers to <laughs> Uncle Barney and Uncle Marshall, Aunt Lily, Aunt Robin, all that kind of stuff. Mm. That's what I, I think is a bit like that. But if he has this such a close relationship with Padme, then why would he go to Newt Gunray of all people? I mean, Newt Gunray is, is the guy who, you know, who's had a bounty on, uh, I nearly called her Princess Leia, Padme Amidala's head for the last 10 years who, you know, blockaded Naboo and all this stuff. Um, Chris, what's up with this guy? Why, why would he make such a terrible decision? Well, I think we know from the expanded universe and a little bit of the talk in Attack of the Clones and especially uh, novels like Darth Plagueis that uh, a lot of senators are very unhappy with the Republic. They're unhappy with the corruption in the Republic and the bureaucracy weighing everything down. And it's not exactly like uh, the Republic helped Padme out when her whole planet was being held hostage. So, I mean, I can understand. I think, I think Uncle Anno isn't really pitting himself against Padme. He, he kind of, I, I think, would see the Republic as a common enemy, uh, kind of drawing parallels to, uh, when Count Dooku was, uh, trying to get Obi-Wan to join the Separatist movement. He's saying, hey, we, we have a common enemy here. The, the Republic is corrupt. And of course, uh, there, there's different reasons being controlled by a Sith and then just not being able to protect 
um, its planets uh, in this case. Um, so I, I kind of don't see it as personal. I see it as Uncle Anno kind of uh, more being um, rejecting the Republic than some of this other fellow senators and ones that he, he is close with. That's, that's, a good, that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, Kieran, how about you? Uh, you know, I echo some of the comments that Chris had made there, particularly the idea that the Republic is particularly corrupt at this point. Um, I mean, she actually makes the note of saying that the vote was postponed in the Senate, and it seems like every time there's a crisis, it's the Senate always postponed, we can't do it, we don't know what we're doing. You know, the Naboo crisis, and they were like, well, we can't do anything. And it's just like, well, what, what, what use is this Senate and Republic? And you can understand why many of these systems particularly if they're starving, they're in the middle of a war, war zone at this particular time, uh, they're not getting the food that they need, then they're going to turn and look for other ways. Um, and I can, un- I can understand in that respect. The only thing that I can't sympathise with him about is why he um, he implores or he advocates the uh, so-called hostage of Padme, particularly if he's known her for a significant amount of time, then I, I do still struggle to sympathise with that. Now, he, he basically put her as hostage... And he must realise that the separatists are not what what they say on the tin. I know he comes to realise that in the episode, but has he not heard of Yuke Gunray putting a bounty on her head? I mean, what does he think he's going to do with her? I mean, he's not going to just let her go. He's going to be a hostage, and to be, you know, it's going to be the the death of her in the end. Um, so in that respect, even at the beginning of this episode, I find it difficult to sympathise with him personally. Yeah, I I I definitely agree with you, Karen. Um, uh, just the, the fact that you would, hold on. Hearing, hearing double. Are you guys hearing double? Yes. Okay. Oh, I'm alright. Is it me? I, I think, I think it, I think it is. Um, is it? Oh, um, what to do? Well, I've got headphones on, is it? You got headphones on. Um, that should. It's so annoying when that happens. Yeah. It, the fact that, uh, the fact that you have headphones on should fix it. Um, yeah. Uh, let me just put it in a different port, maybe. Maybe. How about now? Uh, no. Yeah, I've, I've changed it. Can you still hear double? All right, let me just talk. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I'm still hearing a little bit. Yeah, me too. Um, right. Well, I haven't got the headphones on now. Is that any better? Let's see. <laughs> Are you sure it's not coming from your end, Dominic? Let me try. Uh, um. Well, we can do the mute mic test. Yeah, for... we'll try that. I will. Okay. So who's muted I'll, first? I'll mute first. Okay. So Dominic's muted. And I yeah. don't hear anything. I don't either. Okay. okay. Maybe so it is you. me. Okay. Well, well, might have fixed it. Yeah. It's gone now. It's gone now. Okay. Gone, yeah. All right. Let me just... <laughs> well, next time that happens, just hit the mute and unmute it when you're ready to talk and it should fix it. Yeah. 14. Let's try that. All right. I just got to write down where to look for that so I can cut it out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Dominic, uh, give me a point to jump in because I do have a uh, follow-up to what Kieran just said. Okay. Um... Ooh. Just uh, <laughs> jump in as if he just finished making his point. Okay. Kira, that, that's a very interesting point that you bring up uh, specifically about um, how senators perceive the Trade Federation and Newt Gunray because I've not really thought about this before. I mean, how – when Count Dooku is uh, recruiting people to join the separatists, how does he bring up 
the situation that happened on Naboo because you would think that a lot of people do have very negative opinions of the Trade Federation and Newt Gunray after what happened, especially if they're at all close to the situation. So I mean, it bring, I mean, I'm trying to think of like, is Count Dooku trying to pull the wool over people's eyes? Is he trying to to change the narrative of the story? I'm trying to think of of what Count Dooku would say. If um, someone came up to him and said, hey, I'm not going to join your separatists because you're just a bunch of thugs. I mean, look what happened 10 years ago. I think what I think um, about that is, you know, we've seen that there is this separatist parliament, you know, um, in, in prior episodes. And, you know, it seems as though the Trade Federation has their seat in the Republic Senate, but they don't have one in the separatist um, parliament. But we know that the separatist parliament is really just a, you know, a, a facade. It's not real. Um, the real power is in the separatist council, which seems to be a secret where you have, you know, you have Newt Gunray, Poggle the Lesser, the techno-union guy, and all that stuff. So I think there's that sort of that governing council and then this, you know, separatist parliament, which is just sort of meant to appease the senators who think they're doing the right thing when really they're just part of, of Dooku's game. And I think that Dooku has made it you know, an, an active decision to not uh, let Newt Gunray have a seat in the separatist parliament because yeah. they want them to think, you know, we see in the, in the Mina Bonteri arc in season three that, you know, he's, and uh, someone says, you know, unlike the Republic, corporations do not rule us, you know? So yes. it's, it seems as though he keep, he's keeping them. Yeah. He's pulling the wool over the Senator's eyes in that, you know, no, 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 the, the, the trade federation is not welcome here. When really they are ruling you behind the scenes. I didn't say that. Uh, you know that kind of thing. Well, yeah, you would, you would just say cheap battle droids. That's that's all the only part that a trade federation plays in here. They sell us, or we we buy battle droids from them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, can com- you can compare that to the you know the Republic. Uh, you know they're they're buying clones from the Kaminoans. You know we're buying battle yeah. droids. And that kind of thing. Yeah. Kieran, you wanted to say something. Sorry about that. Um, just to jump in there, um, I, I like your point about the idea he's not on the separatist council because that, that's actually questions the agenda in this particular episode, actually, or, or particular arc. Is that is this Gunray's own agenda? Is is this him just going for Padme, or has it been advocated by Dooku? Is he is he doing it on his just own motivations here? Because if you think about it, the grand scheme of things for Sidious, what? Uh, what, what, what good would it do having Padme taken now? Or, or is that part of his game? Because you always gotta look at the puppet master behind all of this. And, and I just wonder whether this is Gunray doing his own thing here. And that's, uh, you know, questioning his actual motivations and agenda is actually, uh, quite interesting in this particular arc. Yeah, I would say it's actually a little bit of both. Um, we know that Gunray has this personal vendetta against Padme because of, you know, the, the blockade of Naboo and, and all the stuff that happened to him after that. So he has this vendetta against her. He's gonna go out and try and, and, and get her. Meanwhile, Sidious is kind of sitting back and, you know, he knows, he knows about Anakin and Padme. And he knows that Padme is, is Anakin's, you know, his, Achille, his Achilles heel that he, no matter if something bad happens to Padme, Anakin is going in there, and it's just another chance for Sidious, um, if Gunray were to be successful, there would just be another chance for Sidious to observe Anakin and perhaps, you know, suggest subtly a darker path for him. Uh, no, I'd agree with that. Uh, would you echo those at all, Chris, those comments? 
Yes, yes. No, I mean that 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 makes perfect sense, and it, it makes perfect sense that um, I, I was I, at the beginning of the Clone Wars show. We don't see the Separatist Council. Of course, we see their War Council in Episode Two with Poggle the Lesser and the Trade Federation and Techno Union and all of those people. So I'm I'm kind of just thinking going in at that point when I first saw the episode that Anaconda Far might be aware that that was who Dooku and the Separatists were dealing with. And, but later, as you guys mentioned, um, in the episode Heroes on Both Sides, we saw the Council, and that suggested that the public face of the Separatists isn't that War Council, but it's that Separatist Council. Um, so that that makes a lot of sense. So, I, I, so obviously I would think that Andekanda Far would be dealing with Count Dooku and maybe some of the other fellow senators, uh, like, uh, Mina Bonteri. And that would then, that would then solve that question of why would he join the separatists if they were being run by enemies of someone who he was very friendly with. And I'd agree with you there because, uh, uh sorry to jump in there, but I just thought that, um, you can you can see on that heroes on both sides that really Dooku is playing this, the Palpatine role in the Republic. Dooku is doing that with the Separatists. That whenever he's in that Parliament, he himself is uh, put, putting forward this image that he he's is, a political idealist. Not a murderer. Exactly. Exactly. He he is he is there for political reasons, and uh, he's not this Sith Lord. He's not going around telling all the Separatists. He, you know. The, the council knows that the war council. I, well, I, I assume that. I'm a, yeah, I assume they know he's, he's a Sith, or not a Sith Lord, but he is some sort of dark Jedi. But they don't imagine that in the Parliament itself. So, of course, Anaconda Far would be part of uh, with those senators in the Parliament, as evident in Heroes on both sides, rather than with these war uh, corporations, so to speak. So, you know, Dooku's playing again that double role that uh, Sidious is doing. Yeah, you guys, you guys mentioned something there that I thought was pretty interesting, I, I gotta say. Um, you mentioned that Dooku is basically playing the Palpatine role for the Separatist Parliament. And, and in a way, you know, we view Revenge of the Sith as the, you know, the ultimate victory of the Sith, you know, the, once more the Sith will rule the galaxy. You know, in a way, <laughs> they were already ruling the galaxy. They controlled the two most powerful entities in the galaxy, the Republic and the, the separatists it's it's a it's an interesting mm. way of looking at it and you realize how the jedi have pretty much lost regardless um speaking of jedi uh, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up master bombad um as as anaconda far referred to him at, at the end of the episode so we see jar jar in this uh this jedi robe that just just happened to you know for some random unknown reason beyond padme's ship um, i have no idea why um me, much like c3po we have no idea why it was there um but so how ridiculous do the battle droids and gunray look after this you know we stopped seeing new gunray very much in the series do you think that was because dooku sort of thought you you could you thought jar jar was a jedi you're not allowed out anymore you're staying under my control um what do you think of Jar Jar as a Jedi, Kieran? I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, I mean, again, the the, the battle droids in this episode, again, they are made to look particularly foolish. I have to say that the fact that they they just look and see some some person in the cloaked robe and go, "It's a Jedi," 
But, I mean, baffles me. I mean, Gunray, he, oh, he's so scared of it as well. I mean, the first time he sees it, it's like, a Jedi? It's like, oh, my goodness me. Suddenly, all, all, all's gone to fail. You know, a plan's gone out the window. And you think, well, these are supposed to be an army of battle droids here. And, and suddenly they see a Jedi and they... And they're all, like, scared, running away, and they, they don't know what they're doing. It's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, I have to say, but, yeah, I like your illusion there to perhaps Dooku's keeping him at home now. I mean, I mean, they recognise, as evident throughout this arc with Sith, that Gunray, he is important at this point of time in the war, because they can't let him loose. If they let him loose, and, like, in this arc, he gets captured, you know, straight away, he's going to be revealing everything, because, you know, he sees a lightsaber, he'll be like, oh, I'll tell you everything. It's just... Uh, you can understand why they don't want him out, to be honest. And that's why I thought perhaps this is his own agenda. <laughs> Not to say that he's like an animal in a cage, but it's almost like he shouldn't have been going to this planet or system. Um, and now they're, you know, they're in a massive spot of bother here and, and, and the Sith and the Separatists have to find a way to get him out. And this, I think it's, it's moments like these where when we do see Sidious, I think this is when almost it's not quite going to plan and then he has to intervene himself as a way of preventing anything from going wrong, so to speak. Chris, Jar Jar Jedi? Uh... Yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely with Kieran. And I under, I mean, it's understandable that Nuke Gunray and the Nemoidians are completely scared of Jedi. I mean, look what the Jedi have done to them. Uh, <laughs> starting in episode one, I mean, the thwarting the assassination attempt of the ambassadors in the, in the very first few scenes there. And you can see the fear of the Nemoidians just right there. So you, you've got to think that's drawing back to previous experiences before episode one as well. Because, I mean, you have the Nemoidians and their main power is money. They're incredibly wealthy. They are greedy. They are raised to be greedy from birth by their, their hatchery system that they have. And that's their trump card over everyone else in the galaxy except for the Jedi because the Jedi don't care about material possessions. They don't care about money. They're just a force for good or whatever they're fighting for. So you can understand why the Jedi would be so foreign and scary to the Nemodians to the point where if they see something even remotely resembling a Jedi, they are going to run for their lives. And you'd think that the battle droids would just echo that. So it makes sense to me. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, so let's move into the next episode a little bit. Um, you kind of talked about Gunray and we, we, he winds up getting captured. Um, and the, the, uh, the separatists, they launch this, this rescue mission that is really spurred by Darth Sidious more than anybody else. And so it, it begs the question, how much does Gunray know? Does he know, um, Palpatine's double identity? Uh, or is it just they don't want the Republic to learn their war plan so that the war will end too quickly? Um, Chris, I'll throw it to you first. I, th- I think I think the Nemoidians and Gunray are st- still have a big role to play in this war, and I think that um, both uh, Dooku and Sidious have done a fantastic job, basically turning cr- them into um, blind allies for their will. And so, I mean, that's going to take a lot to replace. I, I think that, 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 that especially Nuke Gunnery and the Moanians are very irreplaceable for the Sith. So I would understand why they'd want to protect that until they eventually reveal their endgame and don't need them anymore, which does happen eventually in Revenge of the Sith. So, I mean, again, strategically, it makes sense to me that, 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 that Sidious would still want to, um, protect Gunray if it, unless it's going to cost him something worth more. 
Absolutely. Karen, how about you? How much does Newt Gunray know? Yeah, I'm going to disagree on that point with Chris there. I think he actually knows quite a bit, more than just a blind ally. As much as I don't think that he knows about all the plans, but evidenced enough from uh, episode one, he knows Darth Sidious, he's spoken to them, and he knows that there's an apprentice that there was Darth Maul. The fact that he knows about Darth Sidious, in my mind, is uh, almost enough evidence in itself to... uh, you don't want him talking about that. I know Dooku mentioned it in episode two, but Obi-Wan was disbelieving of that. So now that's not true. If you have somebody else, someone like Gunray talking about it as well, all of a sudden you're thinking, hang on a minute, you know, Sidious, that Dooku said he controlled the scent. That must be Palpatine. He doesn't want anything <laughs> leading to him at this point in the war. So, I mean, again, in, the, in this second episode, again, the sight of a lightsaber and he was going to start talking. So I, I think he knows quite a bit, uh, in terms of maybe not their end game, but he knows enough in Sidious's mind to warrant uh, him being either rescued or killed. I mean, that's yeah. how much they find it is important. And you did mention that uh, the blind allies are difficult to replace, but uh, I think at this point in the war, or uh, well, the war's already started now, I think it's just a progression. It's almost making sure there's no loose ends at this particular point so that when the end game does come, uh, no one will be able to stop it. It's too late. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely, Karen. And I mean, that's a really good point that you bring up that, that connection between the separatists and Darth Sidious. Uh, by the time you get to episode two, it's all Count Dooku dealing with both the war council and the public face that, that the separatist senate. And you don't have Darth Sidious directly talking to any of those people, but Duke Gunray precedes all of those things. He goes back to the time before Count Dooku, before Darsidius had a mouthpiece, and when he had to deal with people directly. And uh, that begs the question, how many people really are aware of the fact that there is a connection between Sidious and the Separatists at all? Because Count Dooku wanted Obi-Wan Kenobi to think that Sidious was not behind the Separatists, but behind the Senate. He was saying that there was a dark lord that controlled the Republic, and he was trying to use that but to manipulate Jedi. And I'm sure he tried that more than once, not just with Obi-Wan, to join him in his movement. So obviously uh, uh, Count Dooku would want to distance his movement from the Sith and from Darth Sidious. So that that's a really good point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, personally, I had never considered Gunray as anything more than, you know, a, a, a pawn. He, he he knows Darth Sidious, but he doesn't know uh, Palpatine. He sort of, he knows little things. He he knows just what he needs to know. Um, but when I was rewatching this episode for the show um, earlier today, I, I, and Palpatine is the one that walks in and basically orders Dooku to, you know, he, he has to save him. I sort of thought, wow, that he must know something more than just, you know, a couple of military secrets here and there. And, you know, we've seen that the, the you know, there are all kinds of battle fo- droid manufacturers. Newt Gunray isn't even really in charge of the Trade Federation e- anymore. Uh, you know, Lot Dodd says in um, Supply Lines, the the other Jar Jar episode, why does Jar Jar and Gunray go together so well? It's, it's, it's the episode one connection, I guess. Um <laughs> You know, we hear him say, say, you know, Newt Gunray is an extremist. He does not represent the separatists. 
or, or he does not re- represent the Trade Federation. So I, I wonder if, you know, back around episode one time, that, like you said, Chris, before he had that mouthpiece of Dooku, he may have, you know, let it slip. Hey, guess what? I'm actually, you know, do the, the thing from the Lego specials, you know, where he pulls the hood off and it's, oh my god, it's Palpatine, and puts the hood on, it's a Sith Lord, Palpatine, Sith Lord, Palpatine, you know. So I wonder if, if that would be the case. It's a, it's, oh. it's definitely a, a, an interesting debate anytime you get into, you know, who knows what? Who knows, uh, is, is, how much does Dooku really know? How much does, you know, how much does Gunray know? How much does Masameda know? How much does Tarkin know? It's, it's, it's an incredible, uh, an incredible, uh, <laughs> thing to wonder about. I'm going to quickly jump in there, actually. And, yeah, uh, as I, uh, I just managed to catch some of episode three and, uh, in answer to your question, I think it's uh, evident in there that he doesn't know Palpatine is Sidious because um, when he ch- he talks to General Grievous in Utapar and he goes and says to the effect, you let Chancellor Palpatine escape your grip, mm. assuming that Chancellor Palpatine and Sidious aren't the same. But to quickly go back into referencing um, when he uh, was talking with Sidious in Episode 1, of course Sidious you can argue, was the Dooku figure in Episode 1 because we all, from reading the Plagueis novel, spoilers anyone who hasn't read it, but um, Plagueis was around at the time of Episode 1. So, in a way, Plagueis was uh, put Insidious there as that role. But then the trouble is, once Plagueis has been removed, Insidious becomes the master-like figure. Uh, it's unfortunate for him in the sense that there's people who knew he was out. So when he was trying to, um, he was trying to seclude himself and just play this role of the uh, uh, the politician. Uh, of course, Dooku knew he was a Sith, but then suddenly he got this loose end of Gunray. And of all the people to... You almost think, of all the people to know, Gunray is probably one of the worst people, particularly <laughs> under any type of interrogation. Um, so I think that, that's what's important to know in that respect, in terms of uh, Sidious. Uh, I, personally, I, I feel that just knowing about Sidious is enough to warrant uh, a major problem for him because uh, it's, it's, it can lead and tie back to him sooner than I, I expect he anticipated. Yeah, and that's underscored by the line, Nuke Gunray's last line. I mean, he doesn't say Count Dooku promised us peace. He says Lord Sidious promised us peace, did he not? Yeah, he does. He does. He did indeed. So, yeah, he still he still was answering to Sidious the whole time directly. It's a good point. Well, yeah, he did so in the uh, in the actual war meeting of Episode Three, didn't he? When uh, Sidious communicated him via hologram, so you, right. you, of course you would assume that they would uh, uh, still be in contact, but obviously it would lessen a lot because uh, Sidious is obviously uh, Chancellor of the Republic, so he doesn't get many opportunities to go and have a quick phone call with uh, New Gunray, <laughs> which is probably a good thing to be honest, because uh, would you really want to have a conversation with that guy anyway? <laughs> yeah, really. I, I just got to say th- this conversation is making me love the prequels so much more, um, um, and uh, it's it's fantastic. Um, let's let's move on a little bit though, and, and talk about Ahsoka. We see Ahsoka working with Luminar on Dooley, and why they're doing a, a. I guess it was you know. Trade Padawan's Day or something. <laughs> uh, we, I wish there was an episode with Anakin leading Barris. That would have been a, quite the adventure. Um, but we see she kind of we we see two different ideologies with how to deal with Gunray. You have uh, you have Luminara there who's just kind of you know trying to sense her way through, slowly try and work things through, and then you see Ahsoka jump lash out at her. Um, was that Anakin's influence or was that a, a total Ahsoka moment, um, Kieran? I'll throw it to you first. 
I can I can understand and uh, probably agree that it's more Anakin's influence because when we see later in the uh, Weapons Factory episode, you can see how Barris really reflects her master. So despite Ahsoka being very young and new for, and that would be you know more brash, I guess, than uh, when you're older and wiser. Uh, she's obviously taking uh, some of Anakin's characteristics and they're, be- they're being almost implanted on her. She's uh, she's almost no, I wouldn't say becoming him because there's obviously you have the um, relationship there with uh, Master Plo Koon. So you you have influences, but at this particular point, spending more time with the Master, um, I would say that she's got more influences from Anakin. And to be honest, um, I may go on a rant about this later, but I'm not a fan of Luminara, I have to say, because I just think her particular methods are so old-fashioned and traditional and... Uh, I mean, it, it was clearly evident that Ahsoka's tactic was working, and then, and then she has, you know, she slams her for it. She's like, "No, you don't do it that way." And in my mind, that's kind of some of the flaws of the Jedi Council in or the Jedi in general have been kind of reflected and uh, personified in Luminara in Luminara's character, I would say. And uh, I can kind of see why, you know. Ahsoka's tactics, to be honest, are almost like the future in a war zone. That's what you have to do. But, um, again, the Jedi are still holding on to their uh, traditions and and uh, uh, their past almost. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, I'm with you. I, I definitely – Luminara is one of my least favorite Jedi. I, I, you know, she was one of those characters like – why won't you change more? Why won't you change more? She, to me, represented everything that was wrong with the uh, the old way of the Jedi Order. Too complacent, too much complacency, and all of that. Chris, how about you? Um, what did you uh, well, think of, of Luminara and, and Ahsoka in this episode? Uh, the, the point is obviously right, because you guys are reading from my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down, uh, is Luminara a microcosm of the fall of the Jedi? <laughs> <laughs> We didn't want to use that word. We'll leave that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And um, as far as Ahsoka is concerned, I I think her reaction is natural. I think it's natural for a Jedi to be intuitive and impetuous, and I think that's beat out of them through their training. And I think it took a unique situation for someone to be – you have to remember, Ahsoka is in a very unique position because she's being trained by a master – who did not grow up in the Jedi Temple. This is maybe one of the first times this has happened in thousands of years. So not only is Anakin an extremely unique Jedi because he was brought in so late and didn't have his whole morality and value system and, and manner of, of just going about life beat into him throughout um, his, his growing up and his upbringing, but also Ahsoka is extremely unique because that kind of echoes on her because now she's being trained by someone who has a completely different worldview than pretty much all the other Jedi because they did not grow up in the Jedi Temple. And so I think that gives Ahsoka the opportunity to, again, be a little bit more unleashed, a little bit more impetuous, and do things out of the box. And then that is that is contrasted beautifully with Luminara and the way that she trains Barris and the relationship between Luminara and Barris, who are completely the opposite way and are all about rules and discipline and procedures and again picking up on the, the original point that that is just a, a microcosm of the entire Jedi Order and that's the reason why they end up falling um, in the next film 
because too many of the Jedi are like that and they cannot adapt to the changing times. Yeah, like like you said there about Luminar and Barriss. Um, in the novel, uh, The Oncoming Storm, which is set right before Attack of the Clones, you have Anakin and Obi-Wan on a mission with Luminara and Barriss. And there's a sequence in there that really underscores the difference between the two of them. And it was something that really, with the two uh, groups of, of Master Apprentice, and it was something that was really, you know, carried over from the EU into this, into this, uh, into the show. And there's a sequence uh, in the novel and it's a, it's a kind of a, it's not a very good novel. I will say it's not one of my favorites. Um, where the Jedi have to win over this group of natives and they're sitting around the campfire and they have to do something that impresses the natives that will get them to join up with them or give them the information they want. I can't remember what, but you see Luminar and Barris do these things that are based, you know, solely on skill and, and lightsaber twirling and moving the, things with the force and it's all about you know this practice jedi way that you know you know formulaic and you know all of that stuff and then you see anakin and obi-wan and, and anakin obi-wan sits down and he you know tells a story and he gets everybody all wrapped up in the story and and anakin sings um if you can believe it <laughs> um thankfully this is one of those things that never made it onto the screen that's where leia got it from uh, it's genetic yeah <laughs> it's one of those things that never made it onto screen mercifully <laughs> but uh yeah so you know it kind of underscores the difference that you know Anakin is, is and Obi-Wan were much more you know I won't, I won't say impulsive but you know they were more in tune you know with the type of people that they were dealing with than yes. Luminar and Barris, who were just all about skill and technicalities and all of that stuff um so yeah so I wanted to bring up that story because um, thankfully, we've never had to hear Hayden Christensen or Matt Lanter <laughs> sing. Um, I'll be a never no. Um, so we hear from we hear from uh, Captain Argaya, voiced by uh, James Marster of the Buffy and Angel and a few other things fame. Um, he said, whoop, whoop. "What? Yeah." <laughs> I said, whoop, yes. Whoop. Big fan of Mister Master, so it was good to see him on the show. Yeah, he falls into that. You know the. the it seemed in the first first season they really went out and got some you know some of these you know quote unquote geek celebrities you know we had Ron Perlman in the last arc we have uh, James Marster and then of course George Takei is coming up in the in that arc uh, later on in the season but he says the line being a soldier being a good soldier means doing what you think is right and you know of course it turns out to have negative connotations because he runs away and and you know he sends Ahsoka away and then he uses that as his opportunity to rescue Gunray and it turns out he's a traitor blah 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 so um you know knowing where this advice comes from is this sort of a criticism of the clone troopers because we we see commander greek you know basically disagree with him and do you think he's right or is he, you know, just saying that to get rid of Ahsoka? I'll throw it to you first, Kieran. What do you think? I actually um, can see where he's coming from, and uh, I'll probably agree with him. I think he has his own motivations, whether whether we agree with them, whether they, well, I wouldn't say they were right, but the idea of being a good soldier, I mean, the clones themselves, very much uh, reflected with uh, Commander Gree here. Um, I mean... The thing is with Commander Gree is that he, he advocates that uh, if, if you've been given an order, then you should stick to it. You should, uh, like Obi-Wan, should go and stick to the book. But sometimes 
I can, I can see how, you can see Rex could fit into that quotation, in my opinion, that you gotta do what you think is right. Um, I mean, later on in the Krell arc, obviously that's a massive Rex arc, um, he, he didn't think it was right, in my opinion, to, to shoot Krell, uh, otherwise he would have done it, uh, and so you can see that, that if you, if you, don't want to be a part of the war, I guess he's trying to say there, then then you shouldn't have to, and you should adapt to the situations, you shouldn't just um, be uh, following orders uh, even if it's wrong and you can see that with Order 66, how Palpatine just tells the clones, kill all the Jedi and they go and do it without question, and and so I can really sympathise with him in, in, in that respect um, and so I in a way, in a, in a way, I'd agree with him. Not with what his actions doing, but with what the actual, uh, what he's saying there, um, in terms of soldiers in general and the clones. Chris, how about yourself? What do you think? Well, I think it, it is ironic because Gree ends up getting his head chopped off <laughs> by Yoda as a result of following orders. Um, this is this is if you look at the big picture, this is the brilliance of Palpatine's scheme because even if for some reason a certain one person decides that the side that they're fighting on may not be the right side and they go to the other side, Palpatine still wins. So <laughs> I mm. think that, that that the fault of any character who's a turncoat in this entire series and in this entire war is not being able to realize that both sides are being controlled by Palpatine and. <laughs> That they kind of uh, need to go live off in a farm somewhere with a, a hot Twi'lek. And make sure <laughs> <it come. laughs> yeah, Cut Laguane, he's the one that figured it all out. He's the smartest of them all. <laughs> yeah, a hot Twi'lek would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, let's move on a little bit to uh, the next episode. And in the in at the beginning of Layer of Grievous, we are introduced to Nadar Veb who is Kit Fisto's former Padawan. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you know, first off, let's acknowledge Kit Fisto has by far the best voice of any Jedi. I could just listen to that guy talk about anything. Yes. Um, and it sounds amazing. Um, but Nadar Vab, um, watching this episode, it really makes me question, you know, how the heck did this guy become a Jedi? Um, because he's, you know, running around doing everything wrong, you know, right from the beginning, right from the beginning, they go up to the door and the clone trooper pulls out a grenade and Nadar pulls out his lightsaber and Kit Fisto's just like, no, 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 guys, we don't need to do that yet, man. Um, <laughs> um, so Chris, I'll, I'll ask you, how the heck did this guy become a Jedi? Well, it's a result of growing up during war times because for uh millennia the jedi were being trained in a peaceful situation so they understood the importance of negotiation and strategy and restraint and all the things that make uh obi-wan such an amazing character um but now that um jedi are learning during a war they're learning that in order to succeed they must fight power with power, which of course goes to the quote at the end of the uh, uh, episode that uh, I hope we get to later. Um, so you have Nadar, and he's he's he's, he's he, all he knows is is war, really, and that's he was able to uh, um, graduate from uh, being a Padawan and become a Jedi Knight um, through actions that probably took place in war rather than peace. 
And so rather than coming up with a diplomatic solution or strategy, he probably just overpowered someone and won something and became a or, – or either that or he was rushed. He could have been rushed as well into uh, completing his, his training because they just needed more knights. So um, I think it's just a result of the war, and I think the reason why uh, that character in the first place was thrown into this episode was to just show what was happening to the Jedi Order and how – the war was just it was just crumbling everything from their roots from their 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 own young uh padawans and knights yeah absolutely you know it was though it's suggested in the in the micro series i think and even in the in this series as well that you know the jedi were bringing up you know padawans sooner and sooner because they needed more Jedi to fight in the war. And yeah. so he may not have been ready. And, and Kit Fisto even says something to the extent of, you know, I'm sorry, I couldn't be there for the end of your training. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, Kieran, how about you? What did you think of, uh, of Nadar Veb and what he represented? Yeah, I mean, I made a, a note about him saying, you know, he's very aggressive and he seems to jump into the action without actually thinking first. And we're talking about how the Jedi almost, uh, you know, they have um, an impression on the clones and they often uh, almost personify the clones in a way. And you could see that, like your example there, Dominic, with uh, the clone captain was named Phil. Uh, and he, he had the grenade and Nadar had the lightsaber. So, I mean, both of them were trying to get straight into the action. Um, and, yeah, I agree with a lot of what, uh, your points that you made there, Chris, because... Obviously, they're running out of Jedi at this particular point. I mean, after the Battle of Geonosis, uh, there was obviously a shortage of Jedi, and they needed to get them in quick. It's one of the reasons why Ahsoka's training was uh, excelled uh, to such an extent. And you can see now how the how the war is affecting. It's doing exactly what Palpatine wanted, and that was to make the Jedi be, uh, you know, change as a result of the war. I mean, there's two things that can happen here. You can end up either like Luminara and stick to your traditions, and if you do that, you still won't win the war because, uh, you know, you almost, you almost have to be like Anakin in a way to win the war. And, and none of the Jedi were prepared for that. And those that did, uh, went too far the other side, either joined the other side or ended up like, uh, Vampir, uh, getting killed. Or you can st- stay put with Luminara and, Adimundi and uh, Plo Koon and uh, if they do that then Order 66 is what awaits those Jedi so uh, you know it's just always playing into Palpatine's hands here and I mean this Nadar Veb here I mean I, you, you would look at him in this episode and I agree with you Dominic and think how on earth did he get how, how did these Jedi let this person become a Jedi it's unbelievable and then we're going to say that uh, Anakin couldn't be I mean uh, it, it just baffles me to be honest but <laughs> I'd say it's more the experience of war. I'd like to think that he wasn't like this when he was being trained. And like you said, uh, Kip Fisto made the comment that he didn't manage to see him through to the end of his training. And, and I assume that they hadn't seen each other in a long time. And that was one of the reasons that uh, he, he was almost so surprised that he changed. But after a long period of time, and even from the start of the war, it's clear that the Jedi are being uh, altered. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, there it is again. Okay, it's gone now. Um, I can remember that one as well. Uh, okay. Um, we also, in the, in this episode, we get a look into Grievous's past. We have those statues that show this warrior becoming the, becoming Grievous, basically, you know, the 
the enhancements, I think is what Grievous calls them. Um, does this make Grievous almost a tragic character? That he's like, you know, he's so, he feels he needs this power so badly that he is willing to make these altercations to his body to the point where he is essentially more machine than man. Um, and of course we had that sequence where it was just about to take the mask off and then commercial break. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. One of those ultimate teasing moments. Um, so um, Kieran, I'll ask you first, um, Grievous, does this make Grievous more of a tragic character or does he, does it make him just more of an evil character? I'd argue it's up to your own interpretation in that. I watched a Dave Filoni feature out on this episode, and he gives the impression that there's there's different viewpoints to how people perceive General Grievous, and and not re- not revealing the mask uh, was an example of him not wanting to show all the answers, give all the answers. It's sort of, in the EU, it's stated that you know he was just. Kalish warrior that got shot down by a Dooku in a shuttle, and then he was re-engineered uh, to fight for the Separatists or against the Jedi. But uh, if you take that interpretation, and I would, I would feel sympathy for him. I, I, I'd, I'd agree. I like that interpretation, in my opinion. So I, I would feel sympathy towards the character, and you could see the evolution from looking at these statues, how he was this mighty. Kalish warrior, and then all of us, you know, go to the next set of statues, and there were parts of robot, robotic parts on his arms, and then on his head, and then eventually you get what we see today as General Grievous. So, uh, personally, I think I think we should have a little bit of sympathy towards this character and how he's ended up in this situation. But uh, I mean, obviously, a, a crash like that would would change a person and ending up like a cyborg it's clear that he hates being a cyborg or being referred to as a droid uh god forbid so i i, I could see how he feels that way and um and yeah so i feel there's there should be sympathy towards this character chris how about you um sympathy sympathy for grievous or uh just just an evil guy well, I mean, I draw parallels, obviously, between General Grievous and Darth Vader. I mean, very similar situations. And I think the difference is we got to see Darth Vader before he became an evil character. We got to see him as a young child and then as a protagonist in Attack of the Clones and Clone Wars at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith. We never got to see that side of Grievous. We don't know when he was a Kalish warrior if he was a valiant hero like Anakin is in the Clone Wars or if he was just as evil back then, all flesh and blood. So it's kind of a really hard call and it depends on where he came from and if um, the manipulation of the Sith um, changed his um, character and his morals any or not. Yeah, interesting. I mean, speaking of the of the... The uh, the ah, I forgot the word. I hate it when I do that. The um, speaking of the Sith, um, we get this sort of this look at the Dooku Grievous relationship. Um, Dooku essentially sets Grievous up with a trap. You know, it's a trap. Um, and you know, you wonder, you know, does do what is Dooku's opinion of Grievous? Does he think he, you know, because Dooku obviously has a very high opinion of Asajj Ventress. But he seems that he's almost like he's just tolerating Grievous. Like he, you know, soon you'll you'll die eventually. Some Jedi will get the better of you. Um, you know, does does Dooku actually think, think there's a future for Grievous, or 
is he just kind of tolerating him until something better comes along? Um, Chris, what do you think? Well, we're just coming off of some episodes where uh, a super weapon was uh, entrusted in the hands of Grievous, and it didn't really end up so well. So, I mean, yeah. I, I, I completely understand this. I mean, Dooku's at the point where, just, just from a management perspective, he has someone under him who's not doing very well, and uh, it kind of makes sense that he would want to put them through a little bit of a test to uh, see what they're really made of and if, if, if it's true that the Jedi are just getting the better of him or if he truly is incompetent. Um, and uh, Grievous at least uh, does what he does best. He survives. Good point. Good point. Yeah, He's, Grievous really is a survivor. And you're kind of talking about, uh, Kieran, you're kind of talking about, you know, this shuttle crash and whether that is or isn't, you know, officially canon, you know, that's uh, quite something to go through. Um, but what, what about you, Karen? Is, is Dooku just kind of ticked off over the last couple of arcs? Um, or is he just, you know, is he looking for an excuse to get rid of Grievous? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I don't think he wants to get rid of him per se. I mean, I think he's a useful tool and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Sidious later in the war become, or if not now, uh, realizes that, uh, he is there. And you're talking about him being a survivor. Well, that's kind of all he really does in a war. He survives, but that, that's almost enough for Palpatine to prolong the war. Is that there's some general there who can, he can still later, as he does in episode three, he can use that as an excuse to then go and say, well, we shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't give up my powers yet because we still got Grievous, even though, you know, he's not the most, um, I wouldn't say he's the most efficient. I mean, if he, he wanted him to kill the Jedi, then he, he hasn't quite done that. But, I mean, you never go and say he's incompetent. I mean, he makes the point as well, which I think is a fair enough point, that he says, you know, you expect victory over Jedi, but all you're giving him is battle droids. I mean, fair enough. I mean, we've seen some of these battle droids in the past arcs, and they have not looked up to scratch. I mean, come on, in the Malevolent Song, they couldn't even put out a fire. So, I mean, I understand where he's coming from in that respect. So... Uh, it, it almost seems unfair he's been given these resources, but an interesting point, just to, uh, kind of linking on to Dooku there, and this is open to you as well, is, uh, I mean, I, I kind of perceived him in this episode as almost, it's almost like a mini, um, a mini representation of the war as a whole. You have Dooku there, who, I, who I'd refer to as almost like the Palpatine figure, who's, who's kind of manipulating everything here to his own end. Uh, uh, he manages to draw the Jedi in and tells them that he wants, uh, he says, oh, I've got a prize for you here. And then, and then he's actually with Grievous and saying, well, look, you're not doing well enough here. So, you know, you need to, you know, get up to scratch. And he's, he's just playing everything, you know, everything that's going on around there. And, uh, I mean, it seems like the Jedi and the, and the Grievous in this episode are both pawns, really. Um, but it does seem strange to me. Does, uh, I mean, in, in your opinions, then, do you think that Dooku really wants to get rid of Grievous? I mean, the, the, I know you said that he seemed a bit angry about him, but, uh, you know, is this a test? Does he think that he's going to actually succeed? Or does, I mean, if you get rid of Grievous, then what have you got left in terms of a general? It's a, it's a good, it's a good point. Um, it, it makes you wonder, uh, I, I, uh, Chris, why don't you go first? I can't think of something just yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, th- I think, I think Tuku's just looking at it as, uh, if, if, uh, Grievous prevails, and then he deserves to be continue to be a general, and if he fails, then he doesn't. So I think, um, 
that uh, Dooku is just manufacturing a situation where uh, the truth will come out, and whatever happens, he's going to stick with. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Um, that's what I was trying to say, but I couldn't find the words naturally. See, he's unsure. I mean, I don't think he wouldn't do this if he was sure. I mean, if he thought that that Grievous was incompetent, he would end him. And if he thought he was a good general and an asset, he would not do this. So I think it's uh, indecisiveness, and he's just unsure. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that that Dooku looks down on Grievous, like, oh, you fight with four lightsabers. Well, I took on Master Yoda with one. You know, it's kind of... <laughs> he looks down on everything. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But, you know, you definitely see that, that Dooku has a higher respect for even someone like Asajj Ventress, who, let's be honest, has pretty much the same success rate as, as Grievous, at least in what we see on the show. Um, so, yeah... Well, in fairness, you, you could have to say that in this arc, she does do her job, which is... Uh... Which makes a nice change, really, doesn't it? She's actually doing a task that's been assigned to her, and that was to get uh, Gunnery out. As it, as it was made clear, though, um, it was it was you, you can't fail, otherwise you're gone as well. So, I mean, everyone's living on a you know a, a thin line here, really, because you know any any mistakes that, that's made is going to really cost them, to be honest, because it's, it's mistakes that which you can argue can't be afforded in, in the war. Yeah. It's an excellent point. An excellent point. Um, let, let's uh, let's move on a little bit to the uh, the final scene of the episode, um, which uh, Chris you mentioned earlier with Kit Fisto talking to Mace Windu and Master Yoda, and Yoda has says the line to answer power with power the Jedi way. This is not in a war. In this war, a danger there is of losing who we are, and you know at the time. That just seems like some wise Master Yoda-isms. Um, but looking at it now, having seen the end of Season 5, my God, is that foreshadowing or not? I mean, it's so... Mm-hmm. It applies so well to that final arc. Uh, with not even just about Barris, but about the Jedi Order as a whole, how they were ready to kick Ahsoka out over just, you know, what Tarkin was saying. Um, it's a it's a fantastic line, um, Chris. Uh, what 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 did you think of that line? And did did at the time did you think it was foreshadowing or was it just another Yodaism? <laughs> well, you have to keep in mind that I had seen Revenge of the Sith prior. Fair to enough. This episode. Fair enough. <laughs> so when I heard this line, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is one of the most consequential lines of the series to that that point. And I still think looking back that it is one of the most important lines in the series because it it basically encompasses the whole story right there in that line the Sith forcing the Jedi to fight to answer power with power and divert from their natural ways of keeping peace so i mean that line is that line is huge and it also shows kind of a little bit of an irony there that you have someone like Yoda who's wise enough to understand the concepts of this but not apply it to the situation in a successful way. It's an excellent way of looking at it. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even think about it in relation to Revenge of the Sith because at the time it just sort of, you know, it didn't really phase me. I just sort of thought of it as, oh, it's a Yodaism. And, but watching it today was... Uh, a totally different, <laughs> different experience. Um, Karen, how about you? What's your opinion of, the, of that quote from Yoda? Yeah, it very much relates to the fortune cookie, the episode, when it says, most powerful is he who controls his own power. And that was something that 
Nadal Veb failed to put into practice, to be honest. I mean, he, he was so angry and uh, over the top and, and violent that uh, he, he managed to lose focus, and that, that was what cost him in the end. He was so desperate to kill Grievous rather than to actually get out there and, and be a survivor, which is what Fisto did. Um, but that, that's very interesting. I, I, I didn't think about the foreshadowing there of the final arc, but it's a very interesting concept there because... You can how you can see then in the last arc of season five how the Jedi have lost focus, how uh, they don't they don't realise it as well. Whereas Kit Fisto recognises that um, that Nadar Veb has changed when Veb says in war strength prevails, the rules have changed, and then Fisto yeah. says perhaps you are the one who has changed, and that that's what's vivid in this episode is that. Um, the Jedi at the beginning of the war are able to see that something's happening, something's changing within the order, but I guess they think maybe it's just the Padawans, the war environment, but eventually it begins to infect themselves, and by the end of it, they're not able to recognise them. I mean, you say Mace Windu in episode three, you know, he's, he's ready to kill him rather than saying, go to the Senate. Uh, they're all there to kill him, which, you, you, I mean, if you went back to episode one, I don't know if you could envisage, envisage that, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. It, it really, it foreshadows really the, the downfall of the Jedi more so than even just the end of season five. Um, so I'll throw it to you guys if you have any, any, uh, other points you'd like to bring up about this episode. Kieran, uh, you first. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of points in general. Um, well, in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of Gunray, what, I mean, what did you guys, uh, make of him in this particular art? Did he, did he add anything, uh, or anything that you didn't already know about him? Did he just reflect that personality? Uh, and, uh, is there anything that really shocked you about him? I mean, it's just open in terms of Gunray's character. Uh, well, I, I personally feel like he was more of a device in these episodes to tie them together and provide a plot for other things to move around. So, I, I and I feel like Gunray's always been like that. I don't think there's <laughs> ever been a lot of exposition about Gunray's character. He's been just a unilaterally, unilaterally adversary to the heroes and has, has created situations that then, um, have caused conflict. So, I don't really look at these episodes as being uh, expositionary about Gunray specifically, or or the Nemoidians or the Trade Federation, but but as them being more of just a plot device to um, show a lot more uh, of foreshadowing and and, uh, and microcosms of the entire situation. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. He's sort of he's sort of the perfect villain in the sense that he's everything we expect him to be. You know, he's slimy. He's running away all the time. He'll double cross you, but as soon as you pull a blaster on him or a light or even the thought of a lightsaber, he runs away in fear. And you know, the, this arc is in many ways a bit of a chase of just you know they're hunting down Gunray, hunting him down, and you know they get him and he gets away and. You know, he, he works in this arc mostly because we already have this expectation of him, and he just fills that <laughs> fills out that role um, perfectly, and just the way we, we expect him to be. Yeah, I'd have to say I wouldn't really want to be around Gunray if I was one of those villains, because you remember at the end of Cloak of Darkness when he goes and says to Captain Argaius, "I've always got a good feeling about you." Then he gets stabbed, and then he says the exact <laughs> same line to Ventress. He says the exact same lines of interest, and then she gets kicked out and uh, nearly killed by Count Dooku. So perhaps, 
Perhaps staying with Gunray is not the best idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, Chris, how about you? I, I know you have have pages and pages of copious notes. Um, any, anything you, you'd like to bring up from this article? Well, I, they, they resemble what you guys have been talking about so much, amazingly. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I have like amazing foreshadowing and capital letters and things like that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think we're kind of seeing these episodes in the same light and – which which is awesome and shows that the writers did a very good job of getting the points across that they wanted to get across and just in general kind of looking back at these episodes i mean just just some highlights uh uh paul dini one of the few clone wars episodes that he wrote with cloak of darkness and he did a fantastic job with the dialogue i mean i love that the ba- the banter between ah- ahsoka and ventress uh Anakin's obnoxious little pet, hairless harpy, lines like that. Fantastic, fantastic. Some of the best of the series. And then kind of um, pulling the curtain back a little bit and looking at the behind the scenes of, of how the episodes were created. I thought Jesse Yeah did a fantastic job directing Lair of Grievous. And I mean, uh, uh, you guys mentioned earlier that scene with the mask being pulled off and it cutting right before you see his face. Uh, it's things like that that really make a difference and elevate episodes like Lair of Grievous above so many other episodes of the Clone Wars because they're not just great from a character standpoint, but they're great from an editing and animation standpoint. And just, just little things like looking at Bombad Jedi, uh, they, at that point they couldn't really animate water, yet they had that trick where they were able to cut in ways that it looked like Jar Jar was going under into water, but they showed him like above the water, and then after he had been submerged, they didn't show him actually stepping into it, but cut in a creative way. And it's just things like that that make the Clone Wars such an amazing TV show as a whole. When they take challenges from a story perspective and are able to animate things that that have never been animated before with that type of budget, like like scenes with water or scenes with fire or explosions by by doing creative things like that like instead of creating a model for the sky painting the sky and just things like that the textures everything and uh, these episodes have so many little things like that in them as well so i mean they're great from a character point of view the writing is fantastic um, the acting is fantastic. Shout out to Ahmed Best. Yes. Um, as opposed <laughs> to BJ Hughes. Uh, <laughs> great job. Hughes. Great job as Jar Jar. <laughs> and, um, yeah, just, just a fantastic job by everyone on the series. I mean, I think, I think if you want to give, if Star, if, if you're a Star Wars fan and you have not seen any of the Clone Wars, this is a good spot to jump in, I think. Yeah, not necessarily the, the the movie, and it may, I mean the first the beginning episodes of the series are pretty good, but I mean you can really jump in at this point. This is a great jumping in point for the series because I think it's really it's it's the it is the arc that sets the tone, the kind of the tone of the, of the mixture of things that are very dark and things that are very light and humorous as well, and you have the full range throughout these episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, we've mentioned a few quotes, uh, a few memorable quotes from the episode, uh, but we always like to give our, our favorite quote from from the arc. Uh, so, Kieran, I'll throw it to you first. Favorite quote? Because uh, there's so many in this episode, I've got three main ones. So what I'll do is I'll say one in case any of you have got it and then come <laughs> back later because there's so much good in this. I'll pick one from each episode, but 
I guess if I'm going to have to choose one at the start, um, I like uh, a little bit in a bomb bad Jedi when uh, Jar Jar's first spotted and C-3PO is with him. And uh, this is how it goes. It goes, um, C-3PO says, I-, I think I'll just be going. And then Gunray goes, and take that Republic droid scum to the dismantling centre. And he's like, dismantling centre? Oh, wait, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Typical 3PO. Uh, Chris, do you have any uh, favourite lines from, from this arc? Uh, from, well, from a comedy point of view, the, uh, Misa? Yes, Yusa line. <laughs> that, that, that made me laugh. That was great. And then, um, from a more serious point of view, again, that quote that we talked about, uh, and this word danger there is of losing who we are, that is my favorite quote of the entire series. Fantastic. Yeah. And for me, I'll do, I'll do the same thing. I got the comedy one, uh, little exchange between Padme and C3PO and, uh, C-3PO says, I'm, I'm afraid the ship has been destroyed. Padme goes, battle droids? C-3PO, no. Padme, Jar Jar? Jar Jar. That was one of my favorites. It, it just cracked me up. Um, and then from a more serious point of view, uh, when Ventress says to Luminara, now you fall, as all Jedi must. I thought that was just such a cool and, and dark line. Yeah. I, I loved it. Um, so, Kieran, did we did we take your other two lines, or have you got you got a few more? No, I've still got them. Unfortunately, they are both comedies. So ah. I, 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 <laughs> next time, I will look out for a serious line, but uh, I, so I couldn't get away with these. And then the cloak of darkness when Argus is a uh, free gun right and uh, he, he starts uh, pleading like, oh, don't, don't, uh, Gunray saying that, and then our guys are just like, oh, do shut up. Count Dooku has paid me a fortune to, li- to deliver your slimy carcass, so please try to stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> that bit always, that's good. And I, I tell you what, a special mention to uh, uh, the doctor as well, uh, Dr. A- A4D, I believe his name is. Uh, but I just thought yes. some of the lines by... I think it was David Accord who did it. I think yes, he was the voice of the Doctor. I, I was very impressed with his performance there. One of the best lines, because he was just so sarcastic with everything he said. But I loved it when uh, uh, Grievous is just uh, is sending Gore to go and kill the Jedi. And he comes in and says, Master, armor patch is getting cold. The armor patch... I'm going to American accent now. <laughs> I can't, I'm not meaning to do that, but I'll just say my British accent. And I was like, Master... Armor, the armor patches are getting cold, and contrary to your relief, I do have other things yes. to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, what a good arc, what a good arc. And uh, I guess we're going to have to wrap it up now. Um, so, Kieran, I'll throw it to you. Uh, final thoughts on this arc and your score out of 10. I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. A 9 out of 10 because the, o- the only reason I'm not going to give it a 10 out of 10, okay, two reasons, is because of, I know what's going to happen in the future and I feel that there are arcs that uh, warrant the 10 out of 10 and I can't can't quite give it to this one because I just think that having Gunray there is the only thread. Um, you know, it's good in the first couple of episodes, but then it's kind of left in the final part of the arc you know he, you see him in the first couple of minutes and then it suddenly goes to the Grievous story so uh, either expand on the Grievous story or uh, have it all related to Gunray that was the only issue but apart from that I mean it was a fantastic arc absolutely brilliant there was the action the lightsaber fights in this was some of the best in the in the season if not no I'd argue actually the best because they were absolutely brilliant uh, 
seeing Assange, Ventress, Luminara, and then uh, Grievous against Fisto. I thought the music, Kevin Kleiner's music, I think special mention to him, I thought they were fantastic. The music in this is so good. Um, it's, it really get you, gets you pumped and uh, ready, you know, in the action scenes, and uh, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Characters as well. You had the mixture of comedy, humour, and then the dark, serious stuff. And to be honest, um, I, I am a fan of the Sith, so I was quite glad to see that there was a. I'm going to count this as a as a dark side victory because uh, throughout the beginning we've seen all the good guys winning, but I, I I would claim this as a dark side victory. So that that's always going to give it an extra rating in my book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Chris, uh, final thoughts and score out of ten. Yeah, well, I think I, I gave my final thoughts previously. Yeah, you kind of uh, did. So I could just be uh, re- repeating that. However, as far as the score goes, I actually remember ranking these episodes. I used to actually do that for, like, every episode for the first few seasons. Oh, nice. And uh, before, I, before I got into, like, writing full reviews uh, a few seasons um, into it, uh, and uh, I gave I gave Bomba Jedi an 8 out of 10, Cloak of Darkness a 9 out of 10, Lara Grievous a 10 out of 10, averaging 9 out of 10, just, like... Kieran, and the reason why is uh, just with Star Wars, obviously, uh, character gets me more than comedy. And uh, the comedy in Bomba Jedi was fantastic, but just that the character stuff and the plot stuff in the other two episodes were, was just so amazing that that I have to I have to put those uh, above of Bomba Jedi in my rankings. But overall, again, this arc fantastic uh rest in peace commander phil uh <laughs> special shout out to uh the 501st commander phil who actually is from my area oh, nice uh he's actually his real name is phil <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he's commander phil and perfect awesome with that peach armor so <laughs> uh, shout out to him and uh, also to to gore who uh was a fantastic monster and right up there with the Rancor in, in my books. Yes, absolutely. And and for me, I'm, I'm going to be with you guys uh, 9 out of 10. It was just fantastic. You know, from, from Jar Jar, you know, not only being funny, but being a bit heroic um, to, to, you know, just the darkness of the, the second and third episodes and the great stuff with Ahsoka and then, of course, Kit Fisto. I mean, how can you not love that voice? It's so good. So good. Um, so yeah, 9 out of 10. Um, and such a great arc. Um, so thank you everybody for listening. Uh, don't forget you can listen to the show every other Tuesday. Um, and you can find the show by going to our Facebook page, which is the Clone War Strikes Back, which is facebook.com slash Clone War Strikes Back. Following us on Twitter at TCW Strikes Back. Or you can subscribe to the Star Wars Underworld podcast iTunes feed. That's where you'll find not only this show, but the Star Wars Underworld podcast, where you can find myself and Chris each and every Thursday, um, and we record those live at 9 p.m. Eastern on channel1138.com. Also, if you want to send us an email, let us know your thoughts on these episodes or the next episodes, which I believe are the Dooku Captured and the Gungan General starring BJ Hughes. Um, Let (laughs) us know, um, clonewarsstrikesback at gmail.com. And, of course, between shows, be sure to hit up starwarsunderworld.com for all the latest breaking Star Wars news, including news about the bonus content. We have some details there about a potential trailer um, that we should be seeing hopefully sooner rather than later. So for Kieran and Chris, my name is Dominic, and may the Force be with you. <laughs> <laughs>